Morning, everybody. So, this is uh, this is my last class with you for a while. I'll be down in uh, confirmation class six one one starting next week. Uh, I get to uh, talk with them about the sacraments, which normally I, I kind of end up either at the first part of the year or the middle of the year. So I usually get the Ten Commandments um, or like the Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed type of time frame. And, uh, and, and this year, uh, for the first time in a while, I get to do baptism, confession, absolution, and uh, Lord's Supper with them. So that, that's going to be fun. Uh, digging into some things with the kids that they already kind of know, but maybe hopefully helping them to bring that into a different part of their, their life and uh, kind of raise the value of, of what God is doing in their lives. So... Um, I will desperately miss teaching you all, obviously, uh, but uh, um, uh, I always do look forward to getting back into the middle school, and when I get a chance to teach in the high school, it's, it's always fun, you know, kind of getting into those different age levels, and, uh, you know, because those of you who are teachers, you know this, that, you know, you have just different different ways that people engage things, and uh, um, so it, it's, it's always kind of fun, you know, moving around and stuff. Um, our opening prayer here, uh, is, this is an old prayer. Uh, it's from St. Basil the Great. Um, he is one of what are known as the Cappadocian Fathers. So I think that it, we, the area that he was in was probably what we would call Eastern Europe. And uh, um, anyhow, O Lord our God, teach us, we beseech thee, to ask thee aright for the right blessings. Steer thou the vessel of our life toward thyself. Thou tranquil haven of all storm-tossed souls, show us the course wherein we should go. Renew a willing spirit within us. Let thy spirit curb our wayward senses and guide and enable us unto that which is our true good, to keeping thy laws, and in all our works evermore to rejoice in thy glorious and gladdening presence. For thine is the glory and praise from all thy saints forever and ever. Amen. So Romans 8, I'm, I'm hoping to get through verse 17. Um, that will get us a, a decent place to, uh, to break and then come back to this in uh, probably May. Oh, that's the other thing I forgot. Um, there, there are little flyers around. Um, uh, Bob is going to be teaching this next section and uh, he is going to go through the last week of Jesus' life. And so the, there are little um, like bookmarks. Sam, there's one of them right there. Oh, Jill has one in her hand there. You know, so if you want to grab one of those to see what's coming up, you are welcome to do so. Um, but Bob will be going through those last weeks of, of Jesus' life you know, as you get into the Easter season and stuff. So... All right, Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified with him. So it says those who are led. 
Um, th that is a passive verb. Um, I, I always think it's important to point that out because uh, we just have this way of trying to turn our, our the Christian faith into the things that we do. Um, but it's a receptive spirituality. It's, it's about what God is doing in us that then leads into the actions of our lives. So uh, an alternate translation, those who are being led by the Spirit. You know, so for those who are being led by the Spirit are sons of God, um, as opposed to those who are led by their flesh, which was mentioned in the previous verses uh, that we, you know, we've been talking about this flesh and, and spirit uh, kind of opposition in the Christian life. So verse 13, which we talked about last time when we were together, emphasized our, our active participation uh, involved in putting to death the body. That, you know, these things of the flesh, these things of sin, uh, that we're going to put it to death. Now in verse 14, it emphasizes that even that at its core is the work of the Spirit. Hence the passive verb. That, that as we go about this work of killing uh, our sinful flesh, that that is done by the power that the Spirit leads us in. And it says that those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, I, I, I did a little scan of the, uh, the English translations, the modern English translations that are out there, and um, most of them actually render this as, as children of God. And um, really, when you look at the context of this passage, the reason that that's being rendered children rather than sons, because the word is sons, um, is... Our, our, our culture's focus on gender inclu inclusivity, and it doesn't actually reflect the text. So, in this case, the word is huioi, uh, which means sons. Now, this masculine plural, uh, it sometimes, it is actually sometimes used as an all-inclusive for children, like if there's a mix of boys and girls. Sometimes it will just call them all sons. Um, but sometimes, you know, so sometimes just re rendering this as, as, as children is absolutely fine. But, but there is a word that generically also means children. Uh, that word is tekna. Um, we're going to be playing with those two words a little bit here. So sorry for the, sorry for the Greek geek. Um, uh, which, interestingly, that word is feminine. You know, so there is a sense where you know, the New Testament has a, just children, and it's a feminine word. Um, and here the word is, is huioi, which means sons, which is a masculine word. And both of them can be used in this kind of all-inclusive all sense. Um, this idea of being children of God, uh, this is not the only place it comes up. You know, in John chapter 1, verse 13, uh, it says of Jesus that as many of, as received him, uh, he gave them the authority or the right to become children, tekna, of God. You know, and so sometimes changing sons to children um, is fine. There, there's, you know, you look at the context, it doesn't change the meaning of what's being said in, in any way. But sometimes changing sons to children actually changes the force and the meaning of the text. 
So when you hear the word child, um, child always denotes a natural relationship. Son, in this context, implies a natural relationship plus uh, status and legal privileges. Children were not necessarily heirs in Roman culture. You know, daughters were often excluded from inheritance. That wasn't always the case. There were certain circumstances that, that women would inherit. Um, but on the whole, uh, you know, the inheritance went to the men, and then it was, it was women got what they needed out of their husbands in that culture. And if there wasn't you know, a, a male heir that would take care of uh, the, the, the woman, then sometimes it was arranged that the woman would, would get an inheritance. So, techna, the word, means children of God. No, it just means children. Just children. So, you know, um, my wife and I have five techna. Two of them are huioi, you know, sons. Three of them are thugatar, daughters. Um, you know, so what's that? I said it's so pretty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, but they would all be our techna collectively. And depending upon the context, I, I could just say I have five huioi, you know, five, which we would translate literally as sons, but it could mean all of them, or I could say five techna. But the context then uh, becomes important in terms of does it matter that it's male or not? And in this context, I think it matters that it's saying male. Um, not because it's trying to separate men and women, male and female believers, but because of this legal aspect of what's going on in terms of what Paul is saying is happening here, that you know, we are all sons of God, that we are not just you know, kind of generically related, but we are related and we have rights and an inheritance. And that is beyond whether we are in this life, male or female. And, and no, this doesn't mean that in heaven we'll all be male. You know, I, I've actually ever occasionally run into somebody who says something along that line. Um, actually, you've heard of the, like, there's, there are other gospels than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Um, you know, so one of the famous ones is the Gospel of Thomas. Have you heard of this? Mm -hmm. It's what we would call a Gnostic gospel. Um, there is a line in there. You know, it's very sexist about men and women, that only men are able to be saved, basically, is what it says. And, um, and, it, and it always fascinates me. People are like, we don't have the whole message because we exclude Thomas. Well, it's clearly a fake. That's why we exclude it. Um, it doesn't fit with the others. Um, and... Uh, um, and it, there's this conversation that if salvation is only for men, um, Peter, in the story, looks at Mary Magdalene and says, well, what about her? And Jesus basically says, don't worry, I'm going to turn her into a man. So 
this this whole this whole sons thing in this context, you know, it, it's it's not about our gender in this life. It's really about getting us to this idea that we are inheriting something, and that God ha- has included us in a very important way uh, in His family. So uh, the move that that's going on here is not so much about a male female uh, dynamic. The move is actually more about moving from an enemy to an heir, from a slave to a son. In Roman culture, allowed for a slave to be adopted and to become a son and an heir. That, and what's the name of the book again? Romans. So we have to kind of you know, think about how the people who are going to receive this are going to understand some of this stuff. So Paul's usage of these two words, um, huios, that's the singular, and tekna matters. Paul uses the word tekna, child, 39 times. And he never uses it of Jesus. Jesus is always huios. He uses that word huios, or some version of it, 41 times, almost exclusively of Jesus. So what I'm saying here is that most of the time when he's talking about us as children, he uses tekna. And when he's talking about Jesus, you know, as the son, he uses huios. But here, he uses the other word for us. Because in Romans 8, Paul emphasizes that redemption comes only through Jesus, the Son. And yet, all believers are, all believers in Christ are sons here. So, Paul will go between huios, sons, in verse 18, or chapter 8, 14, and 19, and technos, uh, children in verses 16, 17, and 21 as he's describing believers as heirs. But the inheritance isn't properly ours as technos. It belongs to Jesus, the Son. And because we are in Jesus, we are sons and therefore heirs. So the language here, it's really intended to connect Jesus, the Son, um, with us, whether we're male or female. Did I beat the dead horse to death? Okay. Um, so he says, you know, we're all sons. And he, then he goes on, he says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Um, the phrase in Greek reads this way, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery again into fear. Um, it's not that we fall back into fear, it's that we went back into slavery. Um, it, he, he wants to point out that we're not, um, we're not regressing into that old, what, 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 what evangelicals might call backsliding, you know, we, we, that's not what we're, we're, we're meant for. Um, we're, we're meant to live in the Spirit. So we didn't receive the Spirit that's going to take us back into slavery, 
which is going to lead into fear. Um, there's, a, there's a spirit of slavery and a spirit of adoption that are being uh, compared here. And part of the Christian life is to wrestle against, to kill the, the spirit of slavery. So we've talked about this with baptism. That in baptism, um, the imagery is that uh, the old sinful nature is drowned. You know, uh, I remember my pastor talking about this in, in kind of this really rather violent way, you know, of, of holding that sinful nature under the water until the bubbles stop coming up. You know that you know that that's. You know how how seriously we're to take our our Christian um, struggle against our sin, and the way that looks like what that looks like in, in our regular everyday lives is it's daily repentance, it's confession and absolution, not just confessing our sins but also receiving forgiveness. It, it's this receiving of the Lord's Supper. That's killing the 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 flesh that the spirit might live. Um, there's a quote here uh, from uh, John Chrysostom, uh, 347 to 407. Chrysostom literally means uh, the golden mouth. He was um, thought to be a, a really great preacher. And, you know, if you ever want to read one of his sermons, they're like 15 to 20 pages long. Mine are two, just so you know. If you put your confidence in baptism to the point that you neglect your behavior after it, Paul says that even if you are baptized, if you are not led by the Spirit afterward, you will lose the dignity bestowed on you and the honor of your adoption. This is why he does not talk about those who received the Spirit in the past, but rather those who are being led by the Spirit now. We've received these gifts. We've received this justification that Paul has talked about. It's something that's given to us freely as a gift, but it impacts our lives so that we then wrestle against our sin and wrestle against our flesh. Now, I do think it's probably worth asking the question, when did we receive a spirit of slavery? Yes. Yeah, for, for, for those who are listening to this, uh, uh, there's no heat in the church today, and uh, the, the technician just showed up, so we are very grateful. <laughs> so when did, when did we receive a spirit of slavery? In the garden. Okay. Yeah. Um, when, we, when our first parents fell into sin, um, it, God says, I will put enmity between you and the serpent. That means that we were aligned with the serpent, and, and you know, so... That's where our, our, our um, energies were, were directed and what we were uh, obligated to obey. You know, Jesus, or God says, I'm going to cut that off and restore your relationship with me. Jesus talks about this in, uh, in John chapter 8, verse 34, which that section is, I think, one of the most ironic parts of the Bible. You know, because Jesus is basically saying that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And they're like, we've never been slaves to anybody. What are you talking about? I'm like, what is your salvation story? I mean, the salvation story of Israel is 
They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God led them out by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Uh, what's this Passover thing that you do every year all about? Right? You know, that Passover and that slavery in Egypt, it's actually, you know, God uses that as a picture of our condition with our sin. That those who sin are slaves to sin. And what did Israel do when they were in the wilderness and they were wandering and things didn't go right? Where did they want to go? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. And it wasn't done once they got in the promised land. I, you know, there, there is, um, at the, in Jeremiah, uh, the, the people are, are experiencing this, this invasion from Assyria. <coughs> and, uh, you know, where do they want to go? They don't want to go to be slaves, but they want to go back to Egypt. You know, and, and it's just this, you know, it's just this picture of who we are, you know, in our sinful nature that we constantly want to return to. Oh, is it like the Stockholm Syndrome? <laughs> Maybe. Chris asked if it's like the Stockholm Syndrome. So, no, but it, it, it's bizarre and it's this part of us. And, you know, sin enslaves. It has this way of, of, of getting its hooks into us so that we keep coming back to it. Um, one of my favorite proverbs, as a dog returns to its vomit, is a man who returns to his folly. And in Proverbs, folly is very much about sin. Wisdom and folly are held in, in contrast to each other. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Folly is living in our sinfulness and you know, not seeking God as our Savior. So when we think about our, our interaction with sin, I, I think that this image of, of addiction is something that is, is actually kind of helpful for us because if you're addicted, you don't, you don't play with you know, the, the, the thing that you're addicted to if you're going to break the addiction. You know, if you want to remain in the addiction, then yeah, you got to kind of keep a little bit of that in your life. Uh, but if you want to get rid of the addiction, you have to get rid of whatever that is that you're addicted to. And sin acts that same way. You know, so that's why Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body, be led by the Spirit. This is also what's at the root of that image of using yeast uh, as uh, an image for sin. Um, even in the Old Testament, you know, for the Passover, they were to get rid of the, all the yeast, uh, all the leavening in the house. Uh, part of that points back to um, you know, the, the making of the unleavened bread uh, in the Passover. But it's also this sense of getting rid of sin. Because you know, if you put just a little bit of yeast in your dough, it makes its way through the whole thing right um, I haven't done it for a, a long time but uh, used to make beer and I would have about five gallons of it, it's called wort but basically it's, it's sugar water okay and I would you know you know what a yeast packet looks like right I dump that in there and in the if, if I did it right and I, you know the conditions were right by the end of, of the day 
there are bubbles that are just coming up the whole side of it you know you got the airlock on the top and it's you know doing it's a little burping and all of that and it's just it's the yeast is filling it and that little packet will produce like an inch of yeast at the bottom of that carboy it is it, it, it's it's amazing how you know it just goes through the whole thing and, and, and reproduces. And, and that's one of the pictures that, that, that the Bible uses of our sin. One of the other dangers with sin, is, it's one of the reasons that, that normalizing sin is so dangerous. You know, it just keeps compounding, which takes us back to Romans chapter 1, where it talks about, you know, it's not just that, you know, in, in our sin, people approve of people who are sinning, but they, you know, they kind of celebrate people who invent new ways to sin you know it's like they get even better at it you know and they're like oh look at that they're good at this um you know and and there there's just this uh reproduction of sin all, all through the life when we don't wrestle against it when we don't put our sin to death so how then would this spirit of slavery lead us into fear well is the fear of the Lord generally a good thing speaking of wisdom that's right I think we quoted that earlier (laughs) the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom so often when the fear of the Lord is talked about, it's talked about in this positive way where it's equivalent to faith. Um, in fact, when we read through the small catechism on the Ten Commandments, every one of the commandments, the explanation begins with, we should fear and love God so that we do and, or don't and then do. Um, but in this context, it, this is a fear that it's it's clearly negative it's an expression of of anxiousness and and dread and and, and terror um, the word is is phobos where we get our word phobia right um, so he, he he's saying you know you've received the spirit of adoption sonship uh, adoption as sons you know fear is not part of that fear is actually about I have to get my way into heaven. I have to be the one that does the things in, in order to satisfy God so that he would you know, look on me favorably. Which is basically every religion of the world, isn't it? Um, some years ago, uh, I read these books the Percy Jackson um, is Chronicle series. I, I don't even remember. Yeah, Percy Jackson, the Olympian. Yeah, and, and it's it's based in Greek. Yeah, it's based in Greek mythology, which uh, those gods, you know, those were actively worshipped where Paul was. They had different names in Rome, but uh, you know, it's it's the same mix. Um, but it always struck me as interesting that whenever the uh, uh, these demigods, these characters who were half god and, and half human, went to the chow hall, 
one of the things they always did was they went past an altar and they scraped off part of their plate. You know, in order that the God, that their parent, you know, uh, would be favorable to them. You know, uh, if you read, uh, if you read the Iliad, a big part of the the problem that you know um, Achilles, you know, Achilles' rage, it, it, what what caused that rage was that um, Agamemnon, the king. Um, offered a sacrifice in order that the gods would be favorable to him but then he took from Achilles in order to you know and not actually lose you know what he needed or wanted whatever all throughout you know the history of the world the idea is I give something to the god and the god does nice things to me that's a relationship of fear and here Paul is saying, that's not your relationship. He says, you haven't received a spirit to take you back into sin, which is going to lead to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption and sonship. Sometimes it's, it's a translated adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And this word that's translated adoption as sons, it's a compound word. And... Uh, it, it connects the noun son with the verb to set in place. So you've received a spirit that sets you in the place of a son. Or in our context, maybe we say, we've received a spirit that sets you in the place of the son. That in Christ, you receive everything that is due to Jesus rather the things that are due to us in our sin. So the contrast is between fear and faith. This faith by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Um, I, I think in, in the ESV it just says that we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, I like uh, cry out. I think that fits nicely with the, with, with the word uh, and also, when you read through the book of Psalms, sometimes the psalmist cries out. And it's always when he cries out, it's this urgent prayer. And I, I think that this is that same type of an image. It's an urgent prayer to call Abba, Father. Um, in, in Psalms, that cry out idea is used over 40 times as this urgent prayer. So, Abba, it's Aramaic. Um, it just means daddy. It's the very familiar way of speaking of a father. You know, and uh, uh, Luther wrote about this at one point. He says, it's not the lips, but the feeling that is speaking here. Yeah. It, it, did most of you grow up looking at your, your dad going, Father? You know, we almost always use some kind of, um, you know, more, um, more familiar, more loving type of way of talking about our parents. It's not just, you know, mother, father, it's, you know, mom, it's dad. 
So you know, it's ab instead of the Abba. Ab. 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 Yeah. Yep. And this this Abba, you know, would be uh, would be a very um, very loving way of speaking of your male parent. And uh, you know, and so I mean, can you imagine this a situation where you know you would cry out, you know, for your 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 dad or or your your parents in a way you know because you need them. Yeah, you know, maybe not as an adult so much, but you know we can remember times as kids, you know that you know and that's the relationship that that's being described here and when you called out to your parents did you expect them to just kind of go not helping you you know you called out to them because you knew that they loved you and they want to be there uh, for you you know recognizing that not all parents in this world are good and that some of us didn't have great experiences with our, our our parents but you know the general idea that God intended for us was that we would experience love from our, our, our parents. You know, and that's that's the picture that's being presented here. That you're dealing with somebody who doesn't want to, you know, enslave you, but someone who wants to give you the things that you need because he loves you. Now this uh, word Abba, it's found two other places in the New Testament. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Where was Jesus when he prayed that prayer? Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night that he was betrayed, right? Right before. And he calls out to his, his father, he, Abba. And the other place uh, is rather parallel to what we just read uh, in Romans uh, from Galatians chapter 4. Because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And when we talk about this idea of God being Father, um, the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, um, this is one of my favorite explanations in uh, in the small catechism. It says, with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe. He tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. We have received a spirit that teaches us to look at God as one who loves us and wants to do good in our lives, who wants to bless us. He's not, you know, looking down his nose and, you know, waiting for the opportunity to zap you. You know, he's not, you know, keeping a list and checking it twice. That's Santa. Um, Because Santa's a relationship of the law, kids. Um, And the law is good. Uh, (laughs) But uh, God is looking at us with a loving eye uh, of, of a father who dotes on his children and he you know longs for us to come to him to cry out you know 
not not in the Monty Python sense of, you know, oh God, you are so big, please do not smite us. But to call out to him in that sense of a child, in their fear, to the one that they love, who they know loves them. Daddy. So fear, fear leads us to cover our backs. We have to take care of ourselves, you know, look out for number one. Fear leaves you wondering, have I done enough? You know, have I offered the right sacrifices? Uh, did I do more good than bad in my life? You know, that, that is a real thing. I've talked with so many people, you know, as they're approaching death, and the, I, don't, I just don't know if I've done enough good, Pastor. You haven't. But Jesus did. You know, and, you know and, and it's, it's just something that it's in us and it just keeps cropping up in us. And our fear leads us to trust in ourselves or something else that, that, that's ultimately unreliable for our salvation. So faith leads us to believe that, that God is a devoted, loving daddy who will obviously do the good that we need. Yeah, Carolyn? Not everybody can have child-father relationship like the one you're talking about. You have to be careful when you're using that to know what kind of a situation people are coming from because otherwise it can make it harder for you. You know, if it's like my dad, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. Um, that, that that is a problem in in this world, um, and uh, you know to kind of elaborate on that, that is. I think it's one of the reasons that we need to be very firm that God is the Father, and we do not always find that properly reflected uh, in this life. You know, um, because that's what you know. That, that relationship of love, you know, earthly fathers, earthly mothers are to reflect that, you know, and are we going to, uh, to fall short uh, of that, you know, moms and dads? Did you ever fall short, of, you know, when you're raising your kids? You know my kids, just ask them. They'll tell you, you know. One of the most humbling things I think, as a parent, is having to apologize to a child and ask for their forgiveness. And I also think that one of the most beautiful things to hear is when your child says, I forgive you. So. And I want to make a point, too, that it's never too late to do that. Yeah. Even, you know, if you remember something from their adults now and something from their childhood that you want to... Bring up and ask, you know, and say, I remember doing this or saying this, and I was wrong, and ask for forgiveness. And that it, I, it brings both of you closer. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. So, verse 16 the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And now we're back into that techna word. 
Um, so the spirit bears witness with our spirit. That's, that's actually important because in Deuteronomy 19, in, in the law of the Old Testament, um, it, it says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And it wasn't just in criminal um, situations that this desire for more than one witness was part of the legal system. You know, any time there was a testimony that needed to be given, it, the testimony was always on two or three witnesses. So our confession of faith, this is saying, it's, it's not just me saying, yeah, I believe, yeah, I believe. It's actually being corroborated. And the one who corroborates your faith is none other than the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit dwells uh, in the elect, um, this, this is a quote from the Formula of Concord. So we, we, we talked about the, um, the small catechism. We've talked about the large catechism. These are parts of a bigger library that uh, we, we call the Book of Concord. And um, the Book of Concord basically is, this is what we believe about the Christian faith. You know, we, we confess this, and every pastor is, you know, yep, this is what I believe. This is what I, how I understand what the scriptures are teaching. And, you know, and as a Lutheran pastor, you know, that, that, it's what defines what it means to be Lutheran, really, is that we've written these confessions down, you know, and this is the things that we believe. Uh, and in this document, uh, which was written after Luther's death, when things are kind of wonky and, and people are confused in terms of the leadership of the church and where are we headed, um, some of the, the new leaders got together and they put together what, what's called the formula of concord, concord meaning peace. So how are we going to have peace with each other? It's through what we confess. It's through what we believe. And, and so they wrote this. Since the Holy Spirit dwells in the elect, so all believers, uh, since the Holy Spirit dwells in the elect who have come to faith as he dwells in his temple and is not idle in them, but urges them to obey the commandments of God, uh, believers likewise should not be idle. Still less, oppose the urgings of the Spirit of God, but should exercise themselves in all Christian virtues, in all godliness, modesty, temperance, patience, and brotherly love, and should diligently seek to confirm their call and election so that the more they experience the power and might of the Spirit within themselves, the less they will doubt their election. For the Spirit testifies to the elect that they are children of God. So the Spirit of God is at work in you, and as he's doing that work in you, shaping you and transforming you, it's like he's telling you, yeah, you, you are one of these children of God. You are one of these sons of God who are going to inherit um, what Jesus has won, what is rightly Jesus's. And, uh, it, it, and because of that, that's going to shape the way that we live. You know, that we are having received this forgiveness, having received the Spirit and heard the Spirit's testimony, we're going to seek to live in godliness and modesty and temperance and patience and brotherly love. And it kind of creates like a feedback loop. 
you know, as you live that life, it's telling you, you know, yep, you are. So when you fail, does that mean you're not? No, it means that your sins are forgiven in Christ, but let's strive a little bit here, you know, it, to, to seek to live the way that the Spirit calls us to live. So the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And there's more to verse 17, but that's where I wanted it to end. What this is telling you is that you, because of your faith in Jesus, inherit what Christ deserves. You have the inheritance of the Son. And what do you inherit in Christ? Forgiveness, eternal life, everlasting salvation, resurrection, all of it is yours in Jesus. So, thank you um, for sticking with me and uh, putting up with my slowness and uh, digging into some of this stuff. And and uh, hopefully uh, you'll come back in May and actually hopefully you'll stick with Bob too because. I think that's going to be a good class looking at uh, the last week of Jesus' life. But um, hopefully uh, we, can, we can finish this book in a few years. <laughs>